I love the Psalms. They've been a, a real encouragement to me over the years. And <clears throat> some of them are a little difficult to read because of the words that they use. They are songs. They're written in poetic form. And so oftentimes um, they use words that are uh, almost bigger than life, it seems like, to describe situations. And uh, because of, the, again, the, the type of song that they are or psalm that they are, uh, we find a lot of that even in our own hymn books, uh, some of the verbiage and, and things that are used that uh, sometimes you have to think about and say, well, what does that mean? What is that dealing with? And uh, so sometimes you'll find that in the Psalms. Psalm 5 is, uh, is really not a whole lot different from the first four Psalms in the fact that there uh, seems to be a contrast that David uh, draws or the, the person that writes these. Now, David didn't write all of the Psalms, but a lot of them he did. Uh, and um, there seems to be a contrast that he tries to draw uh, between the, the godly and the ungodly, or the, the, the ones that live righteously, the ones that live wickedly. And uh, he, he draws some contrasts in three areas, in their, uh, their position in Christ, uh, in their character, the way that they are on the inside, and uh, the end results of them, or what is produced because of this. And so there's three main areas that he tries to deal with in each of these psalms that we've dealt with so far. Uh, as he as he pulls this contrast between the godly and the ungodly, or the wicked and the uh, righteous, um, and so Psalm five is no different. Uh, it's it's very similar in its structure. It can be broken into two halves. Verses one to seven uh, is David pleading with the Lord uh, and asking Him to hearken to His prayer, and then you'll find in verses eight to twelve. Uh, he basically goes back, and he's like a good Baptist preacher. He just repeats himself pretty much. He reiterates the whole thing once, once again. And so it's almost like two verses of the song, if you will, um, where he, he lays out this discourse with the Lord, this, uh, this um, uh, discussion he has with the Lord. And um, so I want us to look at this, if you will. Uh, in verse number one, we're going to go ahead and read the tw- all 12 verses, and then we'll come back and deal with them one at a time. <clears throat> he says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. Neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. And I will fear, uh, in thy fear, uh, will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness. Because of mine enemies, make my way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because they, thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. 
For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous with favor, wilt thou compass him as with a shield. What a great psalm. There's a lot of richness in this, and uh, each of the verses seems to almost be something that could easily stand alone in its lessons to be learned from it. <clears throat> and yet it makes a very cohesive set of learning that uh, is taught here. Almost the entirety of the psalm uh, is the, the prayer of David. And the first few verses, uh, verses 1 to 3, uh, or 1 to 4, I'm sorry, verse 1 to 3, 1 to 4, somewhere in that area, um, is David kind of um, beseeching God. In fact, he says in the verse 1, he says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. And uh, we understand this, I, I think, I, I believe all of us would be in agreement with this, that every time we pray, God does hear our prayers. It's not that God is so busy with everybody else that if we pray, he's, he's, he's not, it's, it's missing him. He, he does hear us. And the psalmist is making a plea here. He's crying out to God, and he says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. And he asks for two things. He asks for the Lord to hear his words, and then he asks for the Lord, secondly, to consider his meditations. And there's a big difference between hearing and considering, isn't there? Uh, there are some times that my son will ask me something, and I'll hear him, and I'll answer quickly. I won't even give it a thought. And then other times he'll say, Now, Dad, before you say no, I want you to think about it. And what he's saying by that is, I don't want you just to hear it. I want you to consider it. And uh, usually if they say, before you say no, they already know I'm going to say no. Uh, but there is a difference, and I think we can all relate to that and understand this. And David's asking both things. There's something that is, that is um, very uh, imploring, very, very heartfelt uh, in this cry out to God. I, I wrote down this thing. There basically are three forms of praying. We have praying with our words, which is often what we refer to as praying. But then there's a praying of meditation of the heart. Uh, sometimes where the heart's crying out to God. And really, it's, it's a place where we almost can't even form the words to say. We don't know how to pray as we ought to. And then there's the crying out to God. And this is a heart that is so in need and so overwhelmed with the need that it cries out its cause and it pleads its cause to the Lord. And uh, the psalmist makes use of these. Uh, forms, and uh, not only does he plead for a hearing of God, but he asks for his consideration of the matter. And he says, "Give ear to my words, O Lord; consider my meditation." Uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote this regarding these first few verses. He says, "There may be prevailing intercession where there are no words, and alas, there may be words where there is no true supplication." Where there's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? There's sometimes the most genuine prayer is one that's not spoken with our lips, but is a cry of our heart. And then there are times that there are words said in the form of a prayer, but yet no prayer is made. And this is what he's speaking of here. He says, let us cultivate the spirit of prayer, which is even better than the habit of prayer. Well, we can learn a lot from that. We learn to pray without ceasing, to have a spirit of prayer, to commune with God throughout the day, not just have our time with God. 
And he goes on to say this. He says, there may be seeming prayer where there is little devotion. We should begin to pray before we kneel down. And we should not cease when we rise up. And boy, there's a great, great lesson, I think, that is taught in this early psalm, uh, in the early part of this psalm, and regarding this idea of praying. David certainly hits the nerve of praying in this first verse. As he says, Give ear to my words, O, God, o Lord, and consider my meditation. Then he says this, Hearken unto the voice of my cry. Uh, this idea of hearkening. Lord, I want you to take action on it. I want, I'm, I'm expecting an answer. In fact, we're going to see this in just a moment. As there's a very unique uh, phrasing that is used. And uh, that there is an expectation of prayer. When we pray, you know, one of the, the evidences whether we are praying with faith or not is whether or not our expectation of God's answer is there or not. If we pray and then we go away and we really are like, ah, God probably is not going to answer that one, was that really a prayer of faith? It's not just believing God can do things, it's trusting that He will do things. There used to be a day where men believed in the might and the power of prayer. We live in a day now where it's almost a, it's almost a gamble with Christians. It's, it's almost like gambling. We, we, we throw our shot at praying and hope that God might answer where is the expectation for God's answer? The psalmist says, hearken unto the voice of my cry. There's a lot to be said of this. The idea of the cry, and it says the voice of my cry. Do you know when the heart cries out, there certainly is a voice that's given to it. Sometimes groanings the Bible speaks of that cannot be uttered. And I'm thankful that we have a Holy Spirit that intercedes with us. And helps us in our praying. And helps us to say the things that we ought to say when the heart is crying out and it cannot quite verbalize the intensity of the thoughts and the burden of the heart. The Holy Spirit comes along and He aids us in prayer. And I'm thankful that the Bible teaches that He is the one that stands in between us and God oftentimes and takes the cries and the utters of our hearts that He certainly hears and knows and is aware of. And he presents them to God. This weeping of the soul, if you will, uh, is something that needs to be nurtured, I think, in the Christian life. We've lost the fervency of praying. Uh, there used to be a day when people would pray and tears would flow. There were times when people would pray and, and would never pay attention to how much time they had spent in prayer. The need and the burden was so great, they were dedicated and consecrated to do what it took to pray and to speak with the Lord, to labor, if you will, in prayer. What a great, great truth is taught here as he says, hearken unto the voice of my cry. And then he says, my King and my God. And it's an interesting because this is the argument that David gives to God as to why he should hearken, why he should answer his prayer. <clears throat> Notice David does not come to God and, and give to God his accolades, his own accolades, and say, I've done this, this, and this, and Lord, you owe this to me. He doesn't come by his own merit. He comes to the Lord and he asks him to hearken to his cry because he is his king and because he is his God. 
And there's a lot to be said of that little pronoun that's before each of those. He says, my king and my God. Let me ask you this today. Is he your king? Is he the one that sits upon the throne of your heart? That has absolute sway over your life? Is he your God? Is he the one that you worship? The one that you adore? The one that you lift up? The one that you revere and reverence in your life? The one that you hold after his truth? And follow after His ways. The psalmist said, Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God. He makes this expression based upon the fact that God had made a covenant with them. By the way, I'm thankful that the book of Hebrews says when He died on the Calvary, that there was a new covenant made. And you and I, if we've trusted Christ as our Savior, we are partakers of that covenant. He is my King. He is my God by covenant. He is my King and my God by promise, and He is my King and my God by the shedding of His own blood. I come to Him in prayer, not because I have any merit, and not out of arrogance, but the book of Hebrews teaches us in chapter number 4 that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. What a great truth that is. Not something we deserve, something that He offers. That we have the access to come to God because of His grace, not because of our merit. And He says this in verse number 3, For unto thee will I pray. And here's an implication by the psalmist, I believe, that says that, uh, he says, In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, Oh, I'm sorry, in verse number 2 is where I was at. For he says, for unto thee will I pray. And, and the idea being given here that I'm asking you to hearken to my voice, Lord, and to the, uh, the, the voice of my cry. But I'm going to pray regardless. Whether there's an answer or not, I'm going to pray. I'm going to labor in prayer. I'm going to continue in prayer. I'm going to be diligent in prayer. And I, I believe that's shown out here as we get in verse number 3. He says, my voice shalt thou hear in the morning. And there's a lot to be said for praying early in the day. One of the men that I was reading on this psalm, some of his thoughts on it, he made this statement. He said, it is the fittest time for inner, uh, for a discourse with God. An hour in the morning is worth two in the evening. While the dew is on the grass, let grace drop upon your soul. Let us give to God the mornings of our days and the mornings of our lives. Prayer should be the key of the day and the lock of the night. Devotion should be both morning star and evening star. And I thought, boy, what a great, great way to word this. He says, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning. It ought to be one of the first thoughts on our, on our hearts. The Bible tells us in the Gospels, as Jesus was teaching His disciples, He speaks of the fact that if ye abide in Me and My words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. And He talks about this idea of abiding in the vine. He says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He talks about the fact that the, the, the branches cannot uh, uh, exist, they cannot live, they cannot bear fruit, except they abide in the vine. The Apostle Paul, I believe, caught hold of this. He understood what it meant to abide in Christ. I often thought, as I read through many of the Pauline epistles and saw uh, the own testimony of the Apostle Paul, how that he would wake up and his consideration in the morning and throughout the day is, Lord, what is it that you have for me today? He brought his body, his mind into subjection. And he made it obedient to the will of God. 
Now, Paul wasn't perfect, and I understand that. In fact, he would be the first to tell you that he was the chiefest of sinners. But the desire was, I want to abide in Him. Oh, that we would make the very first thought of our day, Lord, what will you have for me today? Before we ever swing our legs out of the bed as our minds are coming into focus from being asleep all night, Lord, what would you have for me today? To spend some time with Him in the morning. And I am all for having a set time for devotion. I think that it helps us to be regular in our time and our walk with Him. I think every person ought to have a regular and a set time to be with the Lord. But may it not be our only time. May it be literally a continuation throughout the day. He says, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and we'll look up. That's an interesting phrase. The idea of directing our prayer unto thee, and we'll look up. And uh, the idea again here is, I'm going to lay out my prayer, I'm going to direct it to you, I'm going to lay out my needs, and then I'm going to look up and I'm going to expect the answer. All that we would learn to have expectation. The Bible tells us, and the Apostle Paul wrote it, the effectual, I think it was James that wrote, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And we have gotten to the place where we have a form of praying. We know how we should pray. We go through the process of praying. We have the habit of praying. But we've lost the fervency. We've lost the effectiveness of praying. Charles Spurgeon said this, he says, We too often rush into the presence of God without forethought or humility. We are like men who present themselves before a king without a petition. And what wonder is it that we often miss the end of prayer? We should be careful to keep the stream of meditation always running. For this is the water to drive the mill of prayer. It is idle to pull up the floodgates of a dry brook and then hope to see the wheel revolve. That we would spend our days, and I believe Paul said it best, he said, pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean that we have to be on our knees all day long every moment that we're awake, but that we cultivate the spirit of prayer throughout the day. That there be that meditating, that inner heart of praying and crying out to God. And then he goes on to say this in verse 4, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. Boy, I'd do our world a lot of good if preachers would preach on this subject again. We've taught many times in our pulpits and our churches that God's okay with your sin. God is not okay with your sin. In fact, you're going to see here, the psalmist speaks of this in verse 4, he says, Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil, notice this, dwell with thee. There's not one, one ounce of evil or wickedness that God is going to allow in His habitation and where He dwells. That's why I believe in Revelation chapter 3, when the letter to the church of the Laodiceans was written, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. They were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And, and Jesus was at the place of saying, I can't even come in and commune with you because there's things there that are hindering my presence in your life. I think we all have been through times in our Christian lives where we feel like we're closer to the Lord than at others. And there may even sometimes be circumstances or trials in life or perhaps 
we've just grown distant from the Lord. <coughs> where we feel like we don't have His presence anymore. Not in every case, but in some of those it could very well be that we are coddling and entertaining and hosting sin in our lives knowingly and habitually and, and cultivating that and enjoying that. And we are missing out on God's presence because of that. I'm not talking about our salvation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but that close communion, that walk with God. The foolish shall not stand, he says in verse number 5, in thy sight, for thou, what's the next word here? What? Hatest all workers of iniquity. He can't stand it. Their, their sin and the, the, the heart that these men have, these enemies of God that know the truth and yet work iniquity. In verse number 6, he says, Thou shalt destroy them. Notice this, that what? That what? Verse number 6, Thou shalt destroy them. That what? Speak. Leasing. So it's not just the workers of wickedness, but it's also those that speak with wickedness. God can't stand them. Leasing here is an old English word, and it means literally to be untruthful or lying, deceitful. Uh, he cannot stand that. And notice what he says, the Lord will what? Abhor. Well, that's a strong word. To have intense hatred for. Uh, to, to just literally to just cannot stand this idea of uh, sin. He says, Thou, uh, thou uh, shalt destroy them which speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. And David is the one who is praying and asking the Lord to bring judgment upon these folks, as you'll see here in just a few moments. Now, in verse 7, he says, But as for me, and again, he's drawing this comparison, if you will, this contrast. He says, but as for me, I will come into thy house and in the multitude of thy mercy and will fear and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. There, there was a desire to be close to the presence of God. And he understands that the presence of God can only be had because of the mercy that God has shown us. He does not say, Lord, I have your presence because of what I've done or how good a life I've lived. He actually acknowledges the fact that it was the multitude of mercy that had to cover his multitude of sin. And by the way, in case we don't know this or not, we have a multitude of sin too in our lives. And it certainly takes a multitude of God's mercies. In fact, the Bible tells us that those mercies are renewed every day. That if it were not for those mercies being renewed every day, we would be consumed the very fact that God continues to show His mercy to a, 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 a man who, even though he's been saved by grace, and even though the Holy Spirit indwells him, he understands the frailty of our flesh and the fact that there is a sinful nature there. And even though he understands it, does not mean he condones it. He still hates it. He abhors it. But he shows his mercy time and time and time again. I've heard sometimes that people will say, well, I can live however I want to because God gives me mercy and God gives me grace to cover my sin. And so I can just go out here and live however I want to. No, no. It's because of His long-suffering, because of His unmerited favor to give us His mercy that we ought to say, Lord, I don't want to sin. I don't want to cause grief to your heart. I don't want to do that which you abhor, that you hate, that you cannot stand. 
And yet we live in a day and age where oftentimes it is taught to people, God is a gracious God, God is a merciful God, so don't worry about the, the way you live. No, that's not what the psalmist is saying at all. In fact, he says, but as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy. And I will, in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. He's asking the Lord to lead him and he says, I want you to lead me in your righteousness, not mine. You ever notice that we have our own set of morals that we like to hold to? And oftentimes our, our morals don't always line up with God's morals, do they? My righteousness is tainted. My just, sense of justice is tainted by my sinful condition. But an absolute holy God is absolutely perfect in His righteousness. And He tells the Lord, He asks the Lord in His prayer, He says, Lord, I want You to lead me not in my righteousness. I want You to lead me in Your righteousness. Help me to know what is right and what is wrong, not by my standard, but by Your standard. He says, because of mine enemies. And then I want you to notice this. He says, make Thy way straight before my face. He's saying, Lord, I don't want my way. I want Your way. And I've said often that really the secret of the Christian life is in that single decision, that one decision every moment of every day. I'm either going to have my way in my life or I'm going to seek His way in my life. If we could ever grasp that one truth, if we could ever learn to, to follow after and answer that one truth, we would live the victorious Christian life all the time. Because literally the entirety of the Christian life boils down to that one decision. My way or thy way. What's it going to be? And so he brings this to the Lord. He asks him, he says, Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. There is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wicked. Their throat is an open sepulcher. The idea of this is the, 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 the poison, the destruction, the death that spews out uh, from the rotting flesh of the sepulchers. And their mouth, their, their, their throats are like this. They flatter with their tongues. They bring destruction. Notice what David's prayer is. David's prayer says this, Destroy thou them, O God. This is quite a strong statement. He uses that word, O, as an expression, as a, a groaning of the heart, if you will. And oftentimes I've had people ask me, well, Pastor, why is he praying for God to destroy these wicked? Aren't we supposed to pray for our enemies? Yes, we are. But I want you to notice what he says here is he says, Destroy thou them, O God, let them fall down by their own counsels, cast them out of the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against, what's the next word here? What is it? Okay, here's a very important truth. Don't miss it, because this will make a, a, a huge difference in how you read the Psalms. Oftentimes you'll find David praying for the destruction of enemies. And oftentimes they are his enemies. But I want you to notice something. He equates the enemy of a godly man as an enemy of God. The enemy of the godly are certainly enemies of God. And he's not praying necessarily for the enemies that just come against him because they don't like him. He's praying for those that are enemies against him because of his godliness and his righteousness. And he equates that as being enemies with God. And while he's certainly praying here for these enemies to be destroyed, 
He's praying for them to be destroyed because he considers them to be God's enemies. You'll find that quite often throughout the, the Psalms. He never refers to these enemies of his as those that are enemies of his while he is ungodly. But only as he is godly and faithful and seeks after the things of the Lord. And the enemy of the godly man is certainly the enemy of God. And this is what David is praying for. He says, they have rebelled against thee. He talks about these enemies. He says, I'm not, I'm not asking you to destroy them because of the harm they've done to me. I'm asking you to destroy them because of the harm they are intending to do to you. And that ought always be the way that we pray against the enemies of God. In verse number 11, he says, But all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. Somebody wrote it this way. He says, the whole, they say, the holy bliss of ours has a firm foundation. For, O Lord, we are joyful in Thee. The eternal God is the wellspring of our bliss. We love God and therefore we delight in Him. Our heart is at ease in our God. We fare sumptuously every day because we feed on Him. We have music in the house, music in the heart, music in heaven. For the Lord Jehovah is our strength and our song. He has also become our salvation. Can I tell you, there's great joy as we worship the Lord for who He is. David prays. He cries out to God. He cries out to God based upon the mercies of God, not because of his own merit. He prays for God to bring judgment against those that are his enemies, the enemies of God, to destroy them. And then he says that he is rejoicing in God. Can I tell you this? The man that knows to pray and knows how to pray, that spends time in prayer, not just verbally with words, but even in the meditation of the heart, in the sense of crying out to God in time of need, is indeed a man who has great bliss and gladness and joy in the Lord. It's during those moments where we seem like we've fallen away from God and we've not gotten as close to Him as we should, that it seems that the discouragement, the sadness, the frustration of life seems to get the best of us. The psalmist speaks here as he ends his prayer of the fact that he joys in the Lord. He said, let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. In verse 12 he says, for thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous with favor. Wilt thou compass him as with a shield? The Lord is closer to, works more with, defends those that love Him, that are close to Him, that walk with Him, that know how to commune with Him in prayer. Not just in words, not just in the habit of prayer, but in the spirit of prayer. And all that we would learn from this psalm. What a great, great psalm it is. Let's go ahead and stand together. We'll be dismissed and then we'll have our next service here in about 18 minutes. Lord, we are grateful and thankful for Your Word, what it has done for us as we've been saved for a while and we've spent some time reading its pages and learning from it. Lord, what a joy it 